Grab your seat and let's look at Luke chapter 5 together. We have uh, this week and next week, uh, and then after that we'll be back in Genesis. Uh, we'll continue our, our series in Genesis, but we have two more weeks. Uh, we've been kind of thinking about next steps. We've been uh, looking uh, back at the previous year and uh, plotting our, ourselves on, the, on the, the, the two roads, the narrow road and the wide road. And we've thought about next steps. What is Jesus calling us to this year? Uh, and again, uh, thinking about that in terms of uh, what is the next step that Jesus wants me to take? Uh, and that could, be, uh, that could be an initial trust in him, uh, or it could be something a little further down the road. Uh, but what is the next step that Jesus is calling us to? And last week we thought about uh, how we, we wait well as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ, but are now waiting for his return. And uh, remember, the, uh, this life, it may be long, like he may, he may tarry, <clears throat> but even then, uh, in the scope of eternity, this life is very short, isn't it? Uh, it's very short in the scope of eternity, uh, and yet we want to be faithful as we wait uh, in this life. And we're going to carry that a little bit, uh, a little bit further uh, today. And uh, let's pray, and then we'll consider this text. Father, we do pray that you would help us in these moments. As we think about your word, we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts. And Father, that you would encourage us that this life matters, that you would challenge us. Uh, to use it, to spend it for you and your purposes. So, Father, help us in that. Help us uh, to, to be faithful to what you call us to, even when we don't understand. Would you take a few moments quietly? Don't say anything out loud, but just pray for your own heart that God might speak to you this morning. And then would you take just a few moments again silently and just pray for me, pray that God would speak uh, through me. Well, we need your help, Father. We pray that you would work uh, in us uh, and then that you would work through us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, John Piper uh, Don't Waste Your Life is the name of the book. If you'll bear with me, I just want to read an excerpt of this. You may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife or husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell. If you could have all that, even without God, you would be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making, a wasted life. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. 
Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed. The car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted. And these lives were not lost. Mark chapter 8 verse 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake. And the gospels will save it. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. Which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my seashells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. You know, most of us want our lives to count, don't we? Most of us do, not everybody. That dot last week on that long rope of eternity, that that little dot, uh, it is quite small, isn't it? It is quite small and seemingly it is insignificant. After all, that line of eternity is very long. And yet, though it's small, that life is not unimportant. See, if it were unimportant, it seems that God would just kind of zap us away off of the earth to heaven as soon as we were converted. But he doesn't do that. He leaves us here, and he leaves us here for a reason. And look, it may be scary to us, but God is always calling us deeper, wanting to work in and through us to be all that he has made us to be. And now listen, some in the room, some out there want that. We're hungry that God would change us and make us new and use us for his purposes. Some don't want that. 
probably many of you just don't think it's possible that God could take and use your seemingly insignificant life. You might be a student and you think, what could God do with me? Or you might be older and you think, well, I've lived my life. You know, what could God do with the last few 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of my life? Some of you have just never considered it. That God has you where you are right now for a purpose. That your life matters in his grand plan. And see, that's where these men in our story are today. They are about to have their eyes opened to something that they had not considered before. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. It's a comfortable scene. In the shallow water, you know, just out from the shore. So Jesus has a, a, a place from which he can teach this crowd that has assembled. It's kind of peaceful. Uh, it'd be something that Parag would paint, right? <laughs> just a peaceful, idyllic scene. Uh, if there's kids there, maybe they're playing off in the, the distance. Maybe people are, are eating their, their lunch as they're listening to Jesus. If it was the 21st century, you know, we'd be texting maybe uh, or, or, or playing a little game while we listen to, to Jesus. It's life in the shallow water. It's comfortable. It's, it's easy. Things are good. We're content. We enjoy church and just coming to feel a, a little bit satisfied uh, and a little bit of comfort as we come on Sundays. But something is about to happen here that's going to stir everything up. Something unexpected. There's a call here that Jesus is going to use to draw these men into something deeper, something unknown. Something that is big, that will change the course of their lives forever. And that same call goes out to us as Jesus' followers. When we step foot on that narrow road, we become world changers. We become instruments in the hands of God uh, in a calling that is far more grand than anything we could imagine. Now, there's nothing wrong with collecting seashells. There's nothing wrong with playing softball. That can be a noble thing. But under the surface, there is always a calling that is far bigger that's at work. In other words, seashells can't be the end. There must be something underneath, a calling underneath that infuses that with purpose. And the question for us is, will we follow that calling? Even if it doesn't make sense to us. Even if that next step in the calling is a big one. Will we say yes? Will we follow? 
I want to look at this text with you, and I want to show you three things that I think God wants to work into us through the gospel that he wants to, to develop in us in order to use us in this great calling. Here's the first, and I think we see it in verses 4 to 7. It is responsive faith. Responsive faith. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. God responds to responsive people who obey, even in the dark. Look at verses 4 through 7. Look at what happens. When he finished speaking to Simon, again, he's in the shallow water. He said to Simon, Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. God calls us to follow him into the deep water without necessarily giving all the details. Jesus doesn't explain himself here to Peter. He just says, let's go fish in the deep water. That's it. Now, Peter, in verse 4, doesn't understand this. He's a professional fisherman, right? Jesus isn't. And you can imagine Peter going, hey, you know what, Jesus, you're good at this teaching stuff, but I'm the fisherman, right? We've been trying all night to catch fish, and that's when you're supposed to fish. You're not supposed to fish in the middle of the day. It's too hot. So Peter doesn't understand why Jesus would ask him to go out again into the deep water to fish when it's just not the time to do it. You sure you've got the right thing here, Jesus? You sure you're okay? You ever felt that? You know, God, are you, are you, are you, sure, you're, you sure this is what you want me to do? You, you sure you're calling me to take this step? But what does Peter do? He obeys. He doesn't fully understand it. It doesn't make complete sense to him. But what does he do? He responds in obedience to what Jesus calls him to do. In verse 5, at your word. Because you've said it, Jesus, okay, I'm going to do this. Let's go. Even though it doesn't make sense to him. And listen, in verses 6 and 7, it's as he responds to Jesus' word in faithful obedience that Peter sees Jesus do something that he never expected to see. Look what happens in verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. What happens when they respond in faithful obedience is that God responds. And he responds by moving miraculously with this great enclosure, this great catch of fish. Now listen, Peter's faith isn't great at this point. But it's just enough to generate obedience in him. 
Peter's not, uh, Peter's not some, uh, some know-it-all at this point, some, some monster of faith at this point. All he knows is that Jesus said to go to the deep water, and he does it. He has just enough faith to take that next step, and it's in, that, it's in taking that next step that God responds, and all these fish come into the nets. Do you know how many fish are needed to sink uh, a 20 to 30 foot long boat? I don't either, but it's a lot. And two of them uh, at that. Do you see? God responds as Peter and these men respond in faithful obedience to him. And that's a pattern that we see through and through Scripture. When we take steps of faith, even if they're small steps, when we take a step of faith, guess what happens? God moves. In fact, this is where our faith grows. Our faith grows as we take small steps of faith and see God move in response. We see it all throughout Scripture. Uh, think about King Asa in, in Israel in 2 Chronicles 16.9. And he says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. Toward him, and he sees God move as he trusts. Think about in Joshua chapter 3 when the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land and they have to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua says to the priests carrying the ark, Okay, just walk into the river, it'll be fine. It's about a mile wide, it's a raging torrent. Yeah, just walk in, guys, it'll be okay. God will take care of it. And Joshua chapter 3 says that as soon as the feet of the priests hit the water, that the water stopped flowing. And they were able to cross over on dry ground. And this is true for us. As God calls us to take even small steps of faith, He responds when we move in faithful obedience. Again, maybe there are times in your own life that you can think, you know what, I really grew in my faith at that particular time. And I guarantee you, it doesn't happen apart from taking a step of faith into the unknown. Because that's where God meets us. We grow at that intersection where our faithful response meets God's response. That's where we grow. And that's what we see here. So responsive faith to God's call is the first thing God wants to work into our character. The second is humble dependence. See, God uses humble people who see themselves through His eyes, who see themselves the way He sees them. Look at verses 8 to 10. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. The people God uses view themselves 
the way God does. See, Jesus' miracle here also involves Peter's vision of himself. He sees how God really views him. Now, at first, Peter withdraws, doesn't he? Uh, Away from me, Lord. Again, he doesn't know everything about Jesus, but Jesus is clearly God's agent here, okay? Nobody could uh, either know that those fish were there or cause them to come into the nets. So there's something different about Jesus. And he wants to be far away. Because uh, if he knew this about those fish, what does he know about me? What does he know about me and my life? And look, it's not hard to despair when we understand the the weight of our sin in light of the holiness of God. It, It can feel crushing to us. And often, like an abused animal, we recoil and we just wait for wrath because we can't imagine that God could love us if he really knew who we were. Peter views himself as unworthy. He says, get away from me. Why why me? But see, that's not what Jesus sees, is it? See, this is gospel love. Jesus moves toward sinners. He doesn't recoil from them. Jesus moves toward Peter. His desire is to come near, to pour out his love on him, to transform him, and then grace upon grace to include him in what he is doing. And this is what he does with us as well. See, God's mission is to redeem dependent sinners in order to use them then in that very mission of redeeming dependent sinners. In verse 10, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And in those words, Jesus not only redeems their realities, he redeems our realities as well. In those words, he injects into our lives, as small as they are, a purpose that is greater than we can imagine in this world. Indeed, it's a purpose that shapes eternity because it impacts eternity. Notice that Jesus doesn't call them to a certain job. As if only certain jobs were usable. They are called to an activity that transcends occupation. And as their call trickles down to us, it is a call to participate with God in His plan to rescue men and women from the burden of their sin through the offer of the gospel. See, that's the meaning of fishers of men. And whatever your occupation Whatever your student status, whatever your married status, whatever your economic status, Jesus redeems all those things in order that they might matter eternally. Those 
seemingly mundane things that you do every day, day in, day out, 365 days a year, those are the very things that God wants to use to accomplish his purpose. See, the implications of this are profound. God isn't interested in you tomorrow once you arrive at a certain place. No, God has redeemed you now for this day, for this moment, right where you are. Whether you are a student, a mom or a dad, an engineer, an educator, unemployed, whatever you might be. And here's where the promise of life in the gospel kind of oozes out of this. This is what we were made to do. This is what we were created to do. We were made to function as representatives of God, little pictures of what God is like so that all of creation might know who he is and might know of his love for them. What does God look like? What would God look like if he were an educator? Well, guess what? He has educators that are there to reflect him to those students. What would God look like if he were a student? Well, guess what? He has students in schools, everywhere, so that people might know what God is like and might know of his love. There is no higher calling. Whether you're a parent, a doctor, an athlete, a student, all of those things are part of God's purpose. That the world might know what he is like and might know of his love. And here's a statement for you. You can choose to pursue pleasure in this world. You can choose that. And guess what? You will land on happiness from time to time. Right? Even a broken clock is correct twice a day, right? So you can choose to pursue pleasure in this world and you'll land on happiness from time to time. But it won't last and it will never be enough. Ultimate joy will always escape you until you embrace what you were made for. We have a little dog called Bella. If you've been to our house, Bella greets you with mad barking, right? She doesn't like you. And Bella really doesn't like delivery men. If you are a delivery man and you're in a van and you drive by our house, she will bark and she will chase all the way to the end of the, uh, the garden. And then when you come back, she'll chase and bark all the way back. And Bella, in her little dog brain, thinks that she's actually run those delivery men off. Like she's actually, actually prevented them from, from doing something. She doesn't realize those guys are going to show up tomorrow and do the same thing. And see, look, you can pursue pleasure and purpose in this world, 
but you will ultimately be disappointed because you were made for more. You were made to be a world changer. Now look, you may be used by God in His grace to change one person's world. Or you may be used to change a thousand people's world. It doesn't matter. The point is that God has redeemed you and called you to change the world. Will you humble yourself and embrace that true calling as instruments in his hand? And that leads us to the third thing that we see here. And that is active surrender. That God rewards committed people whose surrender is active by using them. Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to the land, what did they do? They left everything and they followed him. God rewards those who follow in surrender. That's what I mean by active surrender. It's surrender that continue to, to, continues to move. Uh, it's continual, ongoing surrender to whatever God calls you to next. We're to respond in humble, dependent obedience to God's call in our lives every day to surrender to Him. But look, that calling isn't the, the dull droning beat of a, a slave master's drum. That's not what we see here, I don't think. Uh, that calling is for us fullness of joy. And so God's purpose in glorifying Himself and our pursuit of ultimate joy are not at odds with one another. God is most glorified when He is for us the most satisfying thing in the universe. There's no greater joy than being exactly what God made you to be. And there's nothing more glorifying to God than a person who says, I want nothing more than you. Nothing else can satisfy me but you. And that's what Peter and his mates discovered. What's their response to Jesus' call? They left everything and they followed. They got to the shore. They dropped what they were doing. They left it to follow after this man who called them to something deeper. Now just imagine how that looked, right? What if you were Peter's accountant? Or what if you were Peter's marketing guy, right? And you're thinking, whoa, Peter, what are, you, what are you doing? You don't know this guy. What are you doing following, leaving everything and following him? See, the question is, why would they do this? Why would they leave everything seemingly at a whim to follow after Jesus? I, I think it's because that they had tasted something in Jesus that they had never tasted before. They had seen something in him that they had never seen before. They had experienced God's moving in response to their faith. And having seen that, they knew that nothing else could satisfy. Nothing else could, could, could ever equal that. Nothing else could, could, could exceed anything that they might leave behind. In Matthew chapter 13, we read of the pearl of great price. 
that upon finding it, the man sells all that he has in order to buy the particular field. See, when we truly see who Jesus is, the great joy giver who gives true purpose in this life by inviting us to participate with him, when we see that, when we experience that, when we see God move in our lives in response to our our, our piddly little small faith, when we see that, we're spoiled and nothing else Nothing else can ever compare. And though it cost us everything we have, we'll do whatever it takes to get more because there's nothing more satisfying. Why would the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 consider everything he had as rubbish in order that he might suffer with Christ? Why in Acts 20 would Paul say, I consider my life of no account in order that I might finish my course to which Jesus has called me? Think about all the martyrs in history. Why would they give up their lives to be tortured and put to death because of Christ? Think of Jim Elliot, the great missionary to the Aka Indians who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why? Why would the Apostle Peter himself later be crucified? Why? Because Jesus calls followers and then he makes them fishers. And after that, nothing else can satisfy Nothing else can satisfy. So look, you can live a comfortable life in the shallow water. You can listen to some good sermons. You can feel maybe good about yourself. But that's not what true followers do. True life, true purpose, true joy is found as you follow God's calling into the deep water. Give yourself to his purposes. See, that's where the adventure is. That's where life is found. So, don't waste your life. Respond in dependent humility by following Jesus into the deeper water. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, God wants to redeem your reality in order to use you to impact people. Ralph Winter, the uh, American missiologist of decades past, said men and women don't die of old age. He said they die of retirement. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. While you have breath in your lungs, if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants to use you. So will you take whatever next step he's calling you to in obedience to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your grace you have involved us in your eternal purpose. 
That, Father, that little dot that we live, our, our little small lives, Father, they mean something. They matter. Every moment, every day, in your grand plan. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts when we feel that we are insignificant. Father, that you would encourage us that you have made us significant. And Father, would you use us? Would you call us? And Father, would you help us to be obedient, to follow you no matter what? We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.